0: The scripture passage for this morning's message is 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. 1 Samuel 5, 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off, on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Let's go before the Lord again and ask for his help.
1: Father, your word is your word. And ultimately, it's you that speaks through your word. And so I pray that you'd come now, Father. I pray that you would use me, but I also pray that you would use the eyes of the people as they look upon the pages of Scripture. And I pray that you would use the Holy Spirit, Lord, as he stirs in each one of us now to speak to us. Oh God, please let the word illumine our lives. We are not just here to talk about a God who lived a long time ago and things that happened a long time ago. We are here to look at and to learn from a living God who is among us today and who is teaching us today and who is trying to put the rock of his presence and his power under our feet today and so I ask you for help, Father. Help me as I speak. Help all of us as we listen, Father. Help by your Holy Spirit for the glory of your name. I thank you, Lord, for what you'll do. In Jesus' mighty and matchless and merciful name, we pray these things and give you our thanks. Amen. It was an absolutely disastrous day in Israel, the, the likes of which we have never seen. On a single day, in less than 24 hours actually, Israel lost a crucial battle with their enemies, the Philistines. And in the midst of that battle, they lost 30,000 foot soldiers. And when your country's only about a million and a half, two million big, that is a very large loss. It was the kind of loss that affected everybody in the country. As if that was not enough, though, on that same day, in less than 24 hours, the first family of Israel, if you will, was wiped out. The high priest, Eli, died. Both of his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Phinehas' wife, who remains unnamed, died, all at the hand of God, but they died. The first family of Israel was wiped out in a single day. You think whatever you think about President Obama, but just imagine if his whole family was just gone in a single day. Imagine that we were in a war and lost so many people and then we lost him and lost his family, maybe lost key people in his administration. Just feel the insecurity that you might feel in a situation like that. And then above all of that, more important than all of that, the precious ark of God was lost. The very place where God promised to manifest his glory on the earth, the only place where he promised to do something like that. It was lost to the Philistines, and it seemed to Israel like God himself had been defeated. It seemed to them like God himself had gone into exile. And in those days, beloved, there was a a great sense of mourning in Israel. There was a great sense of disillusionment in, in Israel, and they were just left to ask questions like these. What will come of the ark? What will happen to it? Just put yourself in their shoes. They didn't have a 24-hour news cycle. They didn't have satellites and GPS. They didn't have cameras all over the world reporting on every movement of everything that happens every second on the planet. All they could rely on is word of mouth, and they may have gotten things from word of mouth from time to time. But by and large, the population of Israel was left in in wonder. They had no idea what was going to come of the sacred ark that had been with them for so long, and they wondered what would become of God Himself. They wondered, "Who is this God? How could He possibly be defeated?" He was the one who had taken out the Egyptians, the most powerful people on the planet. How could he be defeated by this relatively minor people on the west coast of Israel? What would become of God and what would become of them? They were a defeated people. They were a vulnerable people. Their leadership structure was in tatters. They certainly would have been wondering if they would be invaded. It's kind of a hard thing for us to relate to because we're protected by oceans on every side. But imagine that you're in the middle of Europe or wherever and your country is defeated and you're surrounded by other countries who don't exactly like you. What would you feel like if your army and your God had received such a massive defeat? Beloved, there was a horrible spirit of mourning in Israel when the sun set on that incredibly tragic day. Now, as for the Philistines, they were gloating, they were celebrating, They took the Ark of the Covenant 30 to 35 miles south and a little bit west to the city of Ashdod. The ruins of that city are still there today, near to the modern city of Ashdod, which is now controlled by Israel. 30 to 35 miles is nothing to us, right? I drove all the way to Lake Elmo this morning to pick up Vijay and his brother and all the way back. It's like it was nothing. But for them, they had to travel by foot So 30 to 35 miles was a long way. And if you look at the map, what you see is that the Philistines' object was to take that Ark of the Covenant deep into the interior of Philistia, far away from Israel. They're trying to cut off the possibility that Israel could recapture the Ark, that their God could recapture his glory. And when they reached this historic city, Ashdod, they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the house of their God, they had more than one, but Dagon was their major god, and they brought, him, brought the ark into the house of Dagon as a sort of offering, if you will. Dagon, here is another god whom you have conquered, and they laid it beside him. Things, however, didn't work out the way they wanted it to. Dagon was probably the god of fish. He's always is pictured as a sort of half man, half fish, a, a merman, if you will, rather than a mermaid. His father, according to the mythology, was Baal. And Baal was supposedly married to another goddess that you'll hear about in the Bible called Ashtaroth. So if ever you're reading in the Bible and you read of Baal and Ashtaroth, these were like twin gods, male and female, and supposedly they had offspring, one of whom was Dagon. Baal was the god of storms, Dagon is the god of fish, and all of that makes a lot of sense when you realize that the Philistines were a coastal people and they made their money through farming and fishing. But at the end of the day, mythology is not reality, right? Lots of myths in the world about the gods. And the the Philistines had plenty of it. But their mythology was not reality. And God was about to show that he alone was the living God. It's an amazing story to me. The next morning as the priests and others went into the temple of Dagon to see how things were going, what they found was that the statue of Dagon, which, by the way, was the beginning and end of who he really was, the statue of their God was fallen on his face right before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Now, they weren't really sure what had happened. Perhaps their God had just lost his balance, right? <laughs> Perhaps he had just fallen over. It's a real bummer when your God falls over, isn't it? I think that the author has a sense of humor in mind. He's trying to shame their God a little bit because he literally, say, he just says that they, they took their God and put their God in his place, It's not supposed to work that way, right? If you have such a great, mighty God, you should not have to put him in his place. But that's what they did and thought, well, things are set right now. But the next morning, they come back into the temple of Dagon and they said, Dagon it. I'm sorry. I promised you, Kimmy, I would not say that in church today. (laughs) But I could not help myself. She's like, don't say that. I couldn't help myself. There he was again on his face before the Lord, but now it was even more amazing. It says his head and his hands had been cut off. This is different than broken off. The idea is not that he fell over and broke to pieces. It it was a clean cut. That's the, the nature of the meaning of the words that are there. This was very meaningful because in that day, not all, but some ancient Near Eastern kings would treat their enemies like this. If they conquered an enemy... They would cut off his head and cut off his hands as a display of their absolute power over that one. So you see what's happening here is that the Philistines thought their God had conquered Yahweh, but Yahweh was clearly displaying that he was Lord over their God. And here we come, I think, to the heart of the message of what this story is really all about. Let me just put it to you in these words. The ark of the Lord had been captured, but the Lord of the ark was not taken captive. Oh, this is good news for us, beloved. It seems sometimes in the world, among Hindus, among Muslims, that our enemies are winning, but they are not winning. They are in God's control. God is not in their control. The Philistines took possession of the ark, but they were not in control of God. Amen? God is the living God, and he does whatever pleases him, and he makes every idol bow to him. And one day... Every single idol will bow, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he alone is Lord, that he alone is God. And herein, not only do we see a massive display of God's power, but also of his grace, because back in Israel, beloved, the people are wondering, what in the heck is happening? Where is the ark? Where is God? But they had nothing to worry about. While they were living in disillusionment, God was working to exalt his name and also to defeat their enemies. And I find this amazing. You remember from last week, God caused all of these things to come about. This, none of this was coincidence. God caused his people to be conquered. But even while he's punishing them for being faithless, he is being faithful to them. Amen? They didn't know it. Please understand. They're sitting in their land in disillusionment, wondering what is happening? Where is God? What will come about of all these things? What will happen to us? And while they're wondering, God is working to exalt his name and to weaken the resolve and the power of his people's enemies. Oh, beloved, God is faithful. He is faithful. And I could never take the time this morning to apply this lesson across even a small congregation like this because there's just too many stories to be told sitting in the seats that are right here. But whatever your life is about right now, you need to understand God is faithful and he's here to encourage us in this. Amen? No matter when it seems like our enemies have the upper hand, they do not have the upper hand. Even when God is disciplining us, and rightly so, he was always for us, he is never against us. This is the might and the mercy of our God. In addition to what had happened in the temple of Dagon, the Bible tells us in chapter five, verse six, that the hand of the Lord was very heavy upon the people of Ashdod. He was terrifying them. He had sent a plague among them, much as he did with the Egyptians. He sent some kind of tumors among them. We don't really know what that is, but when you look at all the details of the story, it certainly means that people were dying. They weren't just getting tumors. They were actually being put to death. God was striking the city, and it was putting terror into the hearts of the people. At some point, the people of Ashdod had enough, and so they called the lords of their country to come and confer as to what to do. And in those days, Philistia was organized. They they call it a, a, a pentopolis, there were five major cities, each of which had a lord, and together those lords were the rulers of, of Philistia. So, here in Ashdod, which was one of those five cities, all of the lords of Philistia gathered together to confer to say, whatever shall we do with this situation? And they make the decision to just move the ark inland, to get them away from the coast and go inland about 10 miles to a city called Gath, which was another one of their major cities. But this did not solve the problem, it only shifted the problem. Don't we often do that? Instead of seeking God about what's happening in our lives and about what he would have us do, we just come up with solutions that make sense to us but that are no solutions at all. And there the ark moved to the city of Gath, but there the hand of God was heavy upon the people. And again, the tumors broke out and again people began to die. And so at some point, the the leaders of Gath again gathered the lords of Philistia and said, whatever shall we do? And they decided again, let's just move the ark. This time they went 10 miles straight north to another of the five cities called Ekron, And when the ark arrived in Ekron, again, the Lord began to terrify the people, and tumors began to break out, and people began to die. And you'll see there in chapter 5, verse 10, how the city of Ekron reacted. They said, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to do what? To kill us. And they finally had the wisdom to say, let's get this thing out of our country. Please, let's send this thing back to Israel. Let's get this God away from us, and beloved, I want to say again for a second time, here is the great lesson that God has to teach for us today. The Ark of the Lord had been captured, but the Lord of the Ark had not been captivated, amen? He was powerfully working without a single foot soldier on his side to weaken the enemies of Israel. They had the Ark in their possession, but they did not have God Almighty in control. Israel was wondering what in the world would become of God and of his ark, but they had nothing to worry about because God is always busy exalting his name and working for his people. Even in the midst of his discipline, he is gushing out his grace upon us. This is our God. He may withdraw from us for a time in discipline because he's wise. You remember from a couple weeks ago, there was a moment in Israel where he refused to speak to his people for a while, and he should have done that because why should he keep adding words to his words when they would not listen to his words? But even when he withdrew, in a sense, he never left them. He never forsake them. He never broke the covenant with them. He, he was always for them and never against them. And I keep pressing on this because this is our living God, Amen. This is the God we know and serve right now. And whatever's happening in our lives, this God is over it all and through it all and in it all and among it all through simple faith in Jesus Christ. This is our God. For those of you, particularly, who are involved in world missions, the heart can get heavy and grieve, can't it? When you labor to share and you labor to share and you know so many people who've laid down their lives and it seems like the progress is so small and the, 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 op, the obstacles are so great, we need to look to this story and remember that God is faithful. He's always working for his name. He's always working for his people. This is our God. Glory be to his name. All of these events took seven months to transpire. Just think about what would happen if you lived as a country in defeat without a news cycle that kept you up to date on what was happening, and you had to sit around for seven months wondering what was going on. That was a long seven months. It was dark for Israel, but it was bright for the Lord. Because at the end of that seven months, here's what happened. Not only all the lords of the Philistines, but all of their priests and all of their diviners, which I don't know exactly what that means, just spiritual people who think that they know how to get in touch with the gods, I suppose. Give a a, a nice crisp definition like that. All of them gather in the city of Ekron now to do what? To confer about what to do about the God of Israel. The God of Israel had brought the entire leadership structure of the nation of Philistia to its knees to say, what shall we do to this God? And I just find that amazing, I really do. So they confer together, and the priests and the diviners say, here's what you should do. You should send the ark back to Israel, absolutely, but don't send it in empty-handed. Send them a, a, a guilt offering. Send them a gift, and here's the gift that you should send. Take pure gold, form it into the shape of tumors and of mice, because it turns out not only did they have tumors, but the land was filled with mice, which, which is understandable. It probably should be better translated rats, because in the land of Philistia in those days, they did have rat problems, kind of like they do in New York because they're a coastal city. It was kind of like that in Philistia. And, and I suppose that in this time, what happened was that God caused the rats to increase greatly. So here's what you do. Take pure cold, five for each of the lords of the city, and form them into tumors and rats and give that as an offering to the Lord. And it just makes me remember back to Egypt. You remember when the people of Israel left Egypt and how they plundered the Egyptians by asking for their jewels, asking for their gold, asking for their things? This poor slave people ended up becoming pretty wealthy because God allowed them to plunder this rich country. I see a similar thing happening here. God is sending his Ark back into Israel with a gift, with pure gold, with resources. And this just makes me stop and be amazed at the grace of God. Remember, all this disaster is happening because he's having to discipline his people. But in the midst of his discipline, he's actually preparing a blessing for his people. It just blows my mind. I love our gracious God. And I pray with all of my heart that we'll have ears to hear and hearts to receive him. The priests and the diviners said that through these gifts, if you'll look in chapter six, verse five, they said in this way, the lords of the Philistines should do what? They should give glory to God. It's pretty amazing. I want all the leaders of this enemy country of Israel to give glory to God. And if you give glory to him, perhaps he will lighten his hand off of you. Now, do you remember last week, we talked a little bit about this word glory. And and if you remember, I said to you that the word essentially means weight or heaviness. And not just in the sense that a person is overweight, but in the sense that a person is serious and important and powerful and, and glorious in that sense. The word for that in Hebrew is kabod, glory, heaviness, weightiness. When this whole story has been saying that God's hand is heavy upon the people, it uses the word kabod. So you can hear the relation between the two. Glory is kabod, heaviness is kabod. And the idea is that God's hand had been kabod upon the people, heavy upon the people. So what they should do is give kabod to the Lord, give heaviness to the Lord, give weight to the Lord, give honor to the Lord, and perhaps he would lighten his hand off the people. If they would put the heaviness on God rather than on themselves, maybe God would lighten the load a little bit. If they would glorify him, perhaps he would be merciful to them. And to make this point even stronger, You'll see there that the priest told the people, don't be like the Egyptians. Don't harden your hearts toward God. What did that get Pharaoh? What did that get the people of Egypt, this hardness of heart? But the Hebrew word that's used here for hardness is very interesting. It also means to make the heart heavy. Not in the sense of sadness, but in the sense of importance. Do not think that you're so important. Do not think that you're so powerful. Do not think that you're so great. Do not think that you're exalted above God. Don't put the weight upon you, the honor upon you. Give honor to God, and perhaps he will lighten the load off of you. With this admonition in mind, the priest instructed the people to do something very interesting. They said, make a brand new cart that nobody's ever used or ridden. Find yourself two milk cows, that have never been yoked, so they've never been trained to, to walk with the yoke, take their calves and put their calves in a stall somewhere away from the milk cows, put the Ark of the Covenant onto the cart, put the gifts onto the cart, and then just let the cows go, don't guide them in any way, shape, or form, and see what happens. If the cows do the natural thing and turn back toward their young to feed their young then you will know that all of this plague was just a coincidence. It sort of just so happened that when the ark came into our land, the tumors broke out in the land. However, if the milk cows do what is completely unnatural to them and go to the nearest Israelite city, to the city of Beth Shemesh, if they they make a beeline for that place without guidance, this will be a sign from God that all of this has taken place at the hand of the God of Israel, at the hand of Yahweh. And I just have to say again that I pray that above and beneath and through all the particulars of this story that we're getting the point. That God was in total control, working to exalt his name, working to bless his people. He's brought the leaders and the religious leaders of this country to their knees to seek wisdom about what to do about his name and his heavy hand upon their people. The Philistines did exactly what their priest instructed them to do, and right before their eyes, something really amazing happened. Rather than these untrained cows turning back to their young, which would have been the natural thing to do, the Bible is very clear that they made a beeline for the closest Israelite city, Beth Shemesh. It says they went straight on one single road without going to the left or to the right. And by the way, they've actually discovered this road between Ekron and Beth Shemesh. It was, for their day anyways, it was like a super highway. It was a direct route. Those cows with no training and no ability to speak or any of that, right, no GPS, they got on the right road and they headed straight for Beth Shemesh. And then the author adds that they were lowing along the way. And as soon as I saw that detail, my heart thought, these cows are praising God. It's like, do you remember when Jesus said that he was being criticized for, for people praising him and, the, and the, the leaders were really on his case about it. But he said, listen, if these don't praise me, the rocks themselves will praise me. I think that this is a moment like that. And indeed, when I read the commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, and his opinion about this story, he said the exact same thing, and he brought to mind the story of Balaam and how God used a donkey to speak to Balaam. And here, the cows aren't speaking specific words, but they're making sounds all the way to Beth Shemesh, about a 10 or 12 mile trip, all the way. They're lowing along the way. They're praising along the way, is the way I see it. Kimmy said that they also might have been mourning, and that's possible too. They were bearing the ark of God. They were bearing the guilt offering. So it's possible that there was a sort of mournful praise all the way. And, and by the way, the leaders of Philistia were not leading the cows, but the story tells us clearly that they were behind them, walking with them the whole entire way to see what would happen. So they were witnessing all of this. And what I see happening is that God is displaying his presence and power in the midst of the leaders of his people's enemies. It's an amazing thing that God is doing here, beloved. These cows bore this offering, and they bore the ark all the way to Beth Shemesh, which was a Levitical city. In Joshua twenty-one sixteen, this was set aside for priests and for priestly types. And so as they approach that city with the lords of the Philistines following behind, the citizens of Beth Shemesh lifted up their eyes. They were in the field uh, reaping their harvest. So it was probably April or May, somewhere in that time. And they look up and they see the ark of God on the horizon and their hearts fill with joy because they know what this is about. They've been waiting for months to see what God would do. And now right in their eyesight is the very ark of God. And so the Bible doesn't give us a ton of details, It just says that this ark ends up in the field of a man named Joshua, which is the name Yeshua, which is actually Jesus' name. And it says that in that field is this huge, great stone. At least two times it emphasizes this huge, great stone. And on that stone, the, the Levites went into action and they took the cart to pieces. They arranged the wood up on that stone and they set it on fire and they offered the cows as a guilt offering to God and they received the other offerings for God and they put the ark in a place that was appropriate at least for the moment. And for my sake, beloved, I I feel deeply moved by this whole scene And, and this is gonna sound so funny to you but I don't know a way to get around this. I just see not in the people so much but in the cows a figure of Jesus Christ. Here, these cows, just animals, but being used of God, sort of set their face like flint toward Israel, just like Jesus did toward Jerusalem and the cross. They bore the glory of God back into Israel. Jesus bore the glory of God back into the world. They bore the guilt offering on the cart. Jesus bore the guilt offering on himself. They praised and mourned along the way. Jesus Christ endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Amen? Amen. They show up in the field of a guy named Yeshua, Jesus, and they're sacrificed on the great stone, the great stone. Two times it says it. Jesus is called the rock of our salvation. He is called the great cornerstone. I don't want to be irresponsible with the Bible. I don't want to read Jesus in where he's not, but I can't help but see him here. This is a, a beautiful christ exalting gospel centric scene, and I just want to invite you into meditating on this with me. I have a feeling this week as I was praying and meditating like God was holding back details about the story from me because he was going to give some of you insight, and when he does give you insight, please please share that with me i 'm so eager to be able to see Christ with accuracy in a story like this. But for now, I pray that you'd be amazed at the things that God was doing to exalt his name. The Philistine lords watched all of this transpire, and when the cows had been sacrificed, they went back home, surely giving praise to God because they knew now that the hand of God himself had caused their God to fall. The hand of God himself had struck three of their five most important cities, The hand of God himself had plagued their land and thinned out the enemies of Israel. They knew that the Lord was God. They knew that the God who had struck Egypt now struck their people. And in some way, shape, or form, they certainly gave glory to his name. Now, at this point, the story takes a turn that for me is a sad turn. But one thing I love about the Bible is that it doesn't always tell us stories that just always have happy endings. It tells us truthful stories. It tells us real stories. I'm remembering the men's retreat, Brian, when you talked about Uriah, or was it Uzziah? It was Uzziah. When King Uzziah, his beginning was good, his ending was bad, and in some ways we don't like it that way. It's like, well, can we turn it around? Can he, can he start out bad and end up good? But, but that's not always how things work out. And this story doesn't take a good turn right here. Well, it is a good turn, but it's a, a little bit of a shocking turn. The Bible says at this point that God struck out against His own people in Beth Shemesh and He killed seventy of them right there on the spot. Some of your Bibles will say that He killed fifty thousand seventy of them, but the reason there 's a difference in the numbers is because sometimes Hebrew numbers are difficult to understand and to translate, and there 's just differences of opinion among scholars here but i 'm very much persuaded that it was 70 because there wasn't anywhere near 50,000 people in Beth Shemesh. So, So if you want to know details, I actually have a lot of notes about that. I can share the details with you later. But for now, I think it's best to just take that number 70. God broke out against them and killed 70 of their men right there on the spot. And why? Do you see it in the story there? Do you remember it maybe from having heard the story before? The reason is because they they looked inside the ark of God in clear violation of the word of God. The priests setting aside the word of God is what got Israel in this mess in the first place, right? The priests of God said, forget all your regulations about how to handle the offerings. We will take whatever part of the offerings we want for ourselves. Thank you very much. And forget your regulations about sexual holiness and sexual joy and sexual purity. Forget about all that. We will take any woman we want in any way we want, anywhere we want. That's what we will do. These were the priests of Israel acting like this. Disregarding the word of God for their own purposes. This is what brought disaster upon Israel. Now, beloved, Beth Shemesh was a city full of Levites. These people should have known the word of God backward and forward. They were supposed to have memorized the whole Pentateuch. They were supposed to know the regulations for how the ark was to be dealt with. Beloved, God is a holy God and he is not to be played with. We are not allowed to approach God on our terms. We are not allowed. We must approach God on his terms and on his terms alone. And these people in particular should have known better but they set aside the word of God and just opened up the ark like it was at any normal tent. And God actually, in compassion toward them, had to strike out against them. And here I see another lesson that I think is very important for us. Even though the Lord returned the ark to Israel, the Lord was not owned by Israel. And he's not owned by us either. The Lord does not play favorites. He is God. He sets the terms for how he interacts with all peoples. And he was very clear with his people that if you do not follow my rules and my regulations, which are laid down by perfect wisdom and with perfect love and grace, if you set my word aside, I must strike out against you. Even though the Lord returned his presence to them, he had to exalt his name over them. And I hope that you see that that is a good thing. Sometimes the Lord will strike out against us because he's for us. The best thing in the world that we could see is that God is intimately close, but he is also highly exalted above us. And I've been praying all week long, Lord, how do we do this? How do we look into the ark? How do we transgress? And I don't know what you think, I would really love to hear your thoughts on this, but I don't think that for us it's really a matter of looking into the ark and and frankly, even with the Israelites, I'm not sure that the major point was that they looked into the ark. The major point was that they set aside the word of God. They could have cared less about the specific gracious speech of God. Said, no, thank you. We shall do it our way. We shall treat you like an idol, not like a God. Not good. And I think this is where we come into the story. We do the same thing, don't we? We ignore God's word, we fail to read it, we fail to take it seriously. And in our culture and in a church like this, beloved, we will be without excuse. We will not be able to say to God, we had no way of knowing what you wanted. Or sometimes the sin I commit often is I will read the Bible well, I'll understand it well, and then just go do what pleases my heart. I remember telling Pastor Kevin some years ago that I think in my heart, I actually think I know the path to my joy better than God knows the path to my joy. And sometimes I choose my path rather than God's path. That's just like looking inside the ark. And sometimes God has to strike out against us in some ways. He has to show us that even though he is intimately close to us, he is also exalted over us. Even though he wants to have a close relationship with us, he is always the God who is holy, holy, holy holy. Amen? We would do well to come before God with peace and hope, but also with a little bit of trembling. And I think that the apostle John serves as a a great example of this for us. And I want to close with this as an illustration. You remember what they called John? John was the apostle whom, what? Whom Jesus loved, right? So I don't quite understand that. I mean, Jesus has a great love for everybody, but somehow or other, he just clicked with John. There was a There was a special place for John that wasn't there for anybody else. And that's just his sovereign choice and glory to his name. He and Jesus were intimately close, right? He's the one who lounged right next to Jesus. He's the one who was there at the cross. He is the only apostle who did not forsake Jesus all the way to the cross. He's the one that Jesus said, his mother is there and John is there. He says, behold, mother, your son, behold, son, your mother. This is John. This is the one who's close to Christ in a unique way. But turn with me, if you will, please, to Revelation chapter one. John had an experience when he saw the exalted, glorious Christ. He fell to his knees, the Bible says, as though dead. As though dead. And let's just see, let's read these words and see what it was exactly that drove him to his knees. So Revelation chapter one, I wanna start reading in verse nine. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus. So I'm sure it's clear enough to you, but he was there because he was being persecuted. He was preaching the gospel, and they exiled him because of that. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like snow. He was old. He was very old. He was gloriously old. His eyes were like a a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. In other words, he was steady and stable and immovable. And his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its full strength. I wonder what you would think, how you would feel if you saw that. Sometimes we hear depictions like this and people saying, oh, how glorious and peaceful they felt. John did not feel peaceful. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. It's one thing to think about the glory of Jesus abstractly but when we see Christ face to face, everywhere in the Bible you see, when people actually see him, the effect is that they end up flat on their face as though dead, and this is the apostle whom Jesus loved. And why did the sight of Christ have this effect on him? Well, there's lots that we could say, but let me just put it simply. It's because Christ is holy. It's because he is powerfully and purely holy and glorious beyond anything that we could imagine. He was intimately close to John, but he was infinitely exalted above John, beloved. And what John needed was a a heart that both received the intimacy of God and trembled at the greatness of God, both things. And I think that's the heart that we need too. We need a heart that receives the intimate nearness of God and that trembles at the great holiness of God. Both things, if you lose either thing, you lose God as he is. This is God. As he is. How did Jesus respond to John? Here, look at verse 17. But he, Jesus, what a gracious thing he did. He laid his right hand on me, not near me. He actually touched John. He laid his hand upon me like a father would to his child and said, Fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. I make Dagon and every false god bow to me. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are The seven churches, oh what a sacred moment this is and I commend you to meditate on this carefully. Again, as we look at it closely, I think that what we see is a vision of a God who is intimately close to us and always for us. He's always exalting his name. He's always weakening our enemies even though it might not seem like that but he is holy and above us. We do not own God, he owns us. We are not in control of God ever. He is in control of us We do not own this table. This table owns us in form of symbol, at least. We come before God as humble worshipers and in Jesus Christ, he is intimately close to us. He calls us children, He has turned us from enemies of the state into children in his family. But beloved, he is always highly exalted above us. He is always holy, holy, holy. And the day will come when we bow with our faces to the ground along with John and the the 24 elders and the four living creatures and we all cast our crowns and say Jesus alone is the one. Jesus alone is the one. So I pray that we will learn to live with two things today. One thing, is the confidence that God is always working to glorify his name and to bless his people. He's always doing that no matter what we see with our eyes. And the other thing that I pray that we'll live with today is the sense of the intimate nearness of Jesus and the utter holiness of Jesus, that we will receive him closely, but also tremble before him humbly. May the Lord help us to strike this balance well. So music team, if you'll come up now, and I just wanna pray, and as we stand in a minute and sing our closing song, mainly whatever the words are, I don't know the particular words of the song, I can't remember, but please just focus with me. Try to see this vision of Jesus that John saw and ask the Lord to help us in our hearts make this proper balance, and let me pray for us now. Our Father, we thank you with all of our hearts for your word. We thank you for telling us the truth about who you are. We thank you for manifesting yourself among us. And I pray that even right in this moment that by a miracle of the presence of the Holy Spirit, that you would help us to feel and to strike the proper balance between your intimate nearness and your high holiness. So God, please help us. If we miss either side, we misconstrue who you are. So please help us now, Father. I pray this with utter confidence. I pray this with utter joy because I know that you're eager to reveal to us who you actually are. So thank you, Father, for coming near to us now and working among your people. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.